Chapter 12 of Flowers and Ferns in Their Haunts by Mabel Osgood Wright. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Chapter 12 Aftermath. The beginning and the end of the natural year are alike in simplicity of form and undraped outlines. The foreground and vanishing point are sketched by the etcher's tool. It is only the broader middle distance that is dense with foliage and sensuous color. As at the dawn of spring, the half-tones of pussy-willow and catkin's tassels lead the way toward brilliant flower color, so when the finger of frost touches the bright petals, aftermath, in form of clouds of smoky plant-down, fantastic seed-pods, nuts, and winter berries, draws the eye again toward somber tints, black, the absorber of all colors, and white, its opposite tree shadows upon the snow. Who can predict the date of the coming of frost certainty? One season the field flowers are left to die of ripe old age. The delicate wood ferns go through changes of tint until all color is bleached from them before they are cut down in late October. Another year, perhaps, nothing recovers from the September storms that beat and make sodden and then draw the cold northwest winds after them. Even though frost be light and October a month of slowly deepening red and gold, the flowers disappear from their haunts one by one, and the ferns melt or shrivel away according to their previous succulents, leaving the rock polypody, ebony spleenwort, Christmas and evergreen wood ferns, as the winter representatives of the tribe, so that November is always the month of aftermath. Then, when we follow the wood path and waterways, the eye is content with mere gleanings of color, such as the red-berried cap of Jack in the Pulpit, the dogwood, and the coral-strung winterberry yield. At this time, the open fields, uplands, meadows, and byways, where distance softens, are more alluring than the deep woods in which we are brought face to face with barrenness. But of all places, the marshes bordering Sunflower Lane are the most hospitable to both plant and bird. The hazel bushes along the lane have dropped their nuts, and many a wise red squirrel has made hoard of them. Young oaks, tenacious of leaf, form a windbreak toward the north, so that here and there a tuft of Canada goldenrod is blossoming with fresh dandelions at its roots, both under shelter of wild lettuce, gone to fluffy seed, while at intervals, until the lane becomes merely a wheel-track in the meadow, tall bushes of winterberry flame up like fires of a wayside gypsy camp. Down on the sound's edge, the change from the growing to the resting season of flower and fern is often veiled in the sea mist following the cold storm, and when it lifts, Indian summer possesses the meadows, the reprieve that the magician sends to soften the austerity of frost. For two weeks we had looked out upon a clearly etched landscape of autumn, ripened, not rent, by the shock of frost, where everything was seen at a glance and in detail, from the acorns that the jays pilfered from the oaks, beneath the windows, to the cornstalks, silhouetted against the sky on the hill limit of the horizon. The air was so rarefied that the oxen plodding solemnly along the hilltop appeared gigantic, and like the strange winged beasts of the apocalypse. This is growing monotonous, said Flower Hat one afternoon, 
as the sun went down with a piercing cold yellow glow that promised black frost i don't like to see everything at once and the same thing all the time it's like having one's christmas presents given with the wrappings off just things with no surprises before midnight a storm set in the weather changed again the next day and fog wrapped the landscape teaching us to see it anew by doling it out in sections at first the mist showed us only the nearby white pines using itself as a screen to throw out the articulation of every twig then it retreated below the oaks and we found the russet hue that dyed their tenacious leaves very cheeringly next the fog dropped below the old orchard toward the river on the west and the lowland cottages seemed to float on a lake of mist like houseboats on the south side it rolled backward across the sea gardens to the beach crest and there remained for two days what a protecting cloak against the gunners this fog was to the waterfowl storm driven to stony bar you could hear their voices calling and signaling along its entire length from the land and the flutter of damp wings made mysterious noises like the snapping of icicles in a winter storm or the dripping of melting snow ah the beauty of the scene the next morning when the veil was suddenly lifted from the water and far and near covering the bay like a fleet of white-winged boats in a harbor of refuge the waterfowls floated at the moorings where necessity had anchored them it was a staccato day this second of november everything was sparkling air sand water sky even the sounds were crisp and clear-cut the dry leaves crackled and snapped the wind played over the corn stacks with the dancing measure of castanets while every remaining stalk of marsh grass wild rice and the old fog of the sandy fields rustled in a different key the bird notes too were all staccato the nuthatches sharp quank the blue jays call the yellowhammers wick 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 and the cry of the circling red-tailed hawk no not all for in the upland stubble field from which the buckwheat had been taken rose a sweet legato song clear if a trifle thin spring of the year spring of the year called one voice to another and a flock of meadowlarks arose and flew over us what deceitful birds gasped flower hat as she struggled to face the wind and forced it to blow back the locks of hair that were blinding her turn up the collar of her jacket and give the soft felt headgear she now wore a tilt up behind and down in front all at the same time not deceitful hopeful or reminiscent either you please i answered no more deceitful than indian summer itself that spreads a golden haze over the season's raggedness and gives to november a day like this which save for the swift twilight and late dawn might be april the lark notes are the music to the final scene of the mask of the season of blossoms the magician has given the landscape its last flower which sometimes does not fade and before he washes the colors from his palette with newly fallen snow flower hat still struggling with her hair stopped and climbing a rail fence looked wildly about last flower landscape where surely you don't mean those little wispy bits of goldenrod 
and I'm positive that the frost of a week ago, though it was very light, has left nothing else in this low place. Oh, look at the line of milkweeds with the pods pointing this way and that. The sun and wind are opening them, and you can see the silk puff out and sail away with the seeds, hanging like cars of a tiny balloon. And Flower Hat picked a stalk and held it up. The brown seeds seen through the split pod fitted over one another like fish scales, but even as we looked, the opening grew wider and the dried scales slipped apart, hanging a moment by the silk-like filaments which, in another second, feathered out and floated away to perpetuate the race. How beautiful, she added, and yet it is only common silkweed. And over yonder is a virgin's bower vine, gone to seed. That, as the wind stirs it, looks like a wreath of leaf smoke puffing over the brush. And there are still a few leaves and berries on the Virginia creeper. But I do not see your last flower. Where and what is it? That would be telling a day's pleasure in one word, I replied. I must answer it as time of year does. Come and see, and then take you to this last flower in its haunt. Before noon, we turned from the hemlocks into the narrow road through the hollow. In the dry fields and along the road, the various thistles showed belated pom-poms, and climbing bittersweet or waxwork looped its berry-laden branches over the walls, or else, fallen in a heap, charitably covered a mass of dingy weeds with an orange and red mantle. In the strip of swamp that held the backwater of the river, and from which it was divided by a copse of gray-limbed maples, the cattail flags still held their batons, no longer stiff and brown, but frayed and limp above the beds of decaying leaves. This is one of the marshes where the little peeping frogs announced the coming of spring. Now the place was noiseless, the absence of the myriad sounds from throat and wing and limb often being the essential difference between a late autumn and an early spring day. Along the hemlock road, the banks were green with Christmas ferns and red partridge berries, revealed great mats of the inconspicuous little vines that were somewhat overlooked in the flowering season, just as the brilliant oval berries of spicebush are far better known than its early blossoms. Now for a space, the ground on each side of the road was low, and then sloped up to drier woods. "'Look at the willows!' cried Flower Hat, almost falling out of the chaise as she pointed. "'The soft weather has coaxed them to bud, or else they misunderstood those delusive meadowlarks. You sillies, in a few days, or perhaps tonight, you will be nipped in the bud and learn by bitter experience like the rest of us, that, no matter how it seems, it is not safe in New England to be without your flannels between October and May. Not willows, guess again, I said, guiding Nell into the road. For, as usual, she had walked up to the nearest fence to be tied the moment Flower Hat sprang to her feet. The band of peculiar greenish-yellow in pigments called citrine now followed the road on both sides and washed well up onto the hills. The hue suggested both willows and the flowers of spicebush, now showing the ripe berries, yet lacked the glow of spring color, being a sort of reflection, as moonlight to sunlight though it filled the eye completely and drew it from the misty grayness of the leafless swamp maples. 
As we drove through a narrow place where the bushes came to the wheel tracks, the same color suddenly appeared within grasp. You have come, seen the flower in the landscape, and here it is, almost in the hand, I said. Now, what is it? Flower Hat gazed at the mottled branch for which she had reached. The nuts of the past season were ripening side by side with the thread-like petals of the newly opened blossoms that wrote its name. Witch Hazel! she exclaimed. Who would have dreamed that there was miles of it here, or that these spidery flowers could light up the whole landscape and take the bleakness from it? I've often had bunches of it sent me, and I like the flowers for their oddity, but out here it is a wholly different thing. Why don't people come to see it as they go to hunt for arbutus or pussy willows in spring? It's quite worthwhile. Why, indeed, I echoed in thought. Because, I suppose, the outing mood is too often forsaken with other summer-day occupations, and so, in autumn, the flower in the hand is better known than the flower in the landscape. Very few people have any idea of what, if anything, awaits them on the border of November woods. A half-mile of witch-hazel glow, and then the wood road opened on a level turnpike, where the matted down of seeded goldenrods and other composites blew along the ground in clouds, showing that in every way they are a conquering race, to be watched and kept well within bounds. Then Flower Hat began to laugh at Nell, whose shaggy fall coat had taken up a collection of all the stick types and seating things in the wood road that were provided with hooks and claws instead of wings to ensure their transportation to new soil. A tuft of burdocks ornamented the end of her nose, and she lowered her head to show us that one of the mobile ears was fastened edge to edge by the same persistent seeds. As we stopped to pick them off, our own skirts were soon fringed with beggar's ticks and the long hooked seeds of brook sunflowers that had grown about a wayside water trough. Everything that had not already gone to seed was surely beginning its journey that day, and each fresh gust from over the fields was laden with flying down, sometimes so fine as to appear to be only a quiver of the air, such as is made by summer gnats. The trees were leafless except those oaks and beeches which, evidently desiring to be evergreens, retain a little foliage until it is fairly pushed off by new leaves in spring. The undraped tree forms, therefore, now appealed to one in a new way, no longer as painting but as architecture, a suggestion which is still further carried out by the bold rock ledges of this region. In the summer, transformed to terrace gardens by the clinging greenery, but now standing out in nakedness like unquarried granite, as if awaiting the chisel of creative thought. The river, too, assumes a different aspect in this aftermath season. If we stand above it and look up its course, it is revealed as a power, cutting its way and adjusting its own surroundings, while in the growing season it seems a careless waterway, to be controlled and held in check by its flowery borders, and, unless pushed by the sudden passionate impulse of a flood, too suave to break away from them. Nuts and the various seed pods are in themselves a study, as much apart from that of the perfect flower as are the catkins of early spring. 
and all along the way we paused to look at first one and then another. The hop hornbeam found along the hollow road has graceful drooping pods like hops pulled out twice their length. Such tulip trees as had not raised their straight shafts out of the line of vision bore upright pods, suggestive of dice cups when seen from below. The crimson pyramids of sumac berries were in the velvet, so to speak, a depth of color that they retain like the sturdy rose hips, even when, after much frost, they are backgrounded by snow. As we reached the middle of the hollow lane, the little waterfall upon the right, lacking the muffling barrier of foliage, had an unaccustomed weight of sound, and on the left the beauty of the laurels and hemlocks that swept above a carpet of ground pine seemed like a new discovery. For, as the flower and the leaf of summer disappear from the scene, the evergreen comes forward as by magic, the silent, unemotional evergreen, companion of rocks, a thing seeming to have more concern with the fixity of the eternal hills than with time and the shifting of the seasons. Yet, though no color change is theirs, other than the contrast of the tender shoot with weathered twigs, and the rosy hue of the flower equivalent with the brown cone that follows, these evergreens speak in a definite language of their own to those who pause to listen, and the varied expression of their needle leaves is most emphatic. Under a fall of soft clinging snow, how differently they adjust themselves. The spruce tips curve like the feathered claws of the snow owl, or bristle beneath like the winter footgear of the ruffed grouse. The longer, soft, five-clustered leaves of white pine are alternately ruffled or matted like the coat of some deeply furred wood animal, while the hemlock, abandoning all resistance, bends and loses itself in drapery. At the upper end of the hollow, the witch hazels again appeared close to the road edge, making a lattice through which shone the deep, brown-shadowed water of the double pond. The borders now dank and unlovely with decaying weeds and the general leaf wreckage that had drifted to the banks. Soon the scene changed swiftly, and there followed along the uphill roadway to the ridge a line of stunted red cedars, the outer branches set thick with frosted light blue berries, rather larger than those the bayberry wears. The outline of the pointed treetops against the bare steep speeding one in thought far north, almost to the land of little sticks. The crossroad on the hilltop was a dreary stretch, windswept even in summer. Now it was difficult to see how the scanty growth of stunted maples and a few hazel hedges bound by catbriar had managed to cling to it. Once more below, and following time o' year's river road toward tree bridge, tree shrub and undergrowth grew rich again, and throughout that well-known way, November strung for us, and for the bird's behoof, a magic rosary of winter berries of which, as the beads should be told over, week by week, one would vanish, then another, until, when not one remained, spring would be here. The sound of the axe came from the charcoal clearing over the mountain beyond the bridge, but the rumble and jar of the clumsy gear of the old cider mill was absent. A year ago its belting had been unshipped for the last time. The door of time o' year's cabin was closed, but there was the fresh earth of recent footprints on the step. Upon the window sill, cracked corn was scattered, 
a bundle of unthreshed rye leaning against the well-curb, and a shock or two of buckwheat was propped between the straggling canes of the half-wild blackberry bushes, while a fat hamrind wired to the bluebird's apple-tree showed that, though human hands now stretched out to him, this follower of the woodpath was, as ever, mindful of his winged fellows and their winter poverty. A figure appeared a few rods below the cabin, carrying some sort of burden that hid the face at first. It was time of year with his gun, an armful of hemlock, bittersweet, stalks of milkweed pods, and ground pine, while a couple of quail were hanging round his neck by a string. "'What have you been doing?' called Flower Hat gaily, for since she had designed his twin family trees, Aloes and the apple and all, the old man tolerated her. "'Have you been stealing game and had it fastened around your neck in penalty, as we punished our setter with the chickens he killed?' No, said Time o' Year, though maybe yes is the right answer, for now I'm in the nature of a provider. I've been foraging, as you can see, but for reason, and not just destroysomeness. The doctor, he allowed a taste of game, is about the thing to perk up little schoolma'am's appetite, and these here growing things'll cheer her up while the posies she's filled the foreroom winders wit gets into. She don't want that foreroom kept dark and closed like the custom hereabout, and so I took the shutters clean off and let the sun in full, for that's all Doc says she needs, sun and fresh air and summit to look ahead to, says he. I don't have so much mind living at the farms. I thought to, now the shutters is off, and there's no dark corners. I've minded that's what all of us are hankering for in this world, though some don't sense it. Yes, the vines and berries is nice and as good as you'll find this time of year. I'm satisfied, too, he continued, answering the question in my eyes as he smoothed his silvery beard, in which some leaves had caught, and looked dreamily up across the hillside. Yes, content, though just only a stock of wayside silk we'd go into seed natural in its haunts, with plenty of sun and air, and something to look ahead for that the eye can't yet see. Then, a rapt expression blending with his far-off smile, he continued on his way, the load of aftermath falling across his shoulders like a druid's garment. November, Indian summer, aftermath, all too soon vanish in leaf smoke, and with chilled fingers we tell the beads of the rosary of winter berries. Outside the window, the trellised vine loses its last leaf and seems merely a part of its support, and soon one twilight comes when the frost traceries upon the window panes behind the flower pots in the foreroom conceal the wide outdoors and all the summer left to us is of the heart then the magician bestows his final woodland gift the fire logs and from them springs the hearth flower called love of home not to be lightly gathered but cherished in its haunt end of chapter twelve end of Flowers and Ferns in Their Hots by Mabel Osgood Wright